Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan, and I'm one of the elders here at Christ City. And it's my joy to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we will be taking a slight break from our uh, expositional series on the Psalms to look at Hebrews 12. Last week, Brant talked about perspective, and uh, Hebrews 12 with its very high Christology, gives us that perspective. And yet we will also look at a psalm at the end. We will look at Psalm 73 indeed. So, but before we do all of that, let me pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you love us, that you demonstrate your mercy to us. Father, I ask that as I uh, preach this word that you have prepared for your people, that you would give me strength and you would help me. I need your help. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes and the ears of our hearts, that we might see your glory, that we might see Jesus for who he is, and that we might be have the courage to lay aside all weight that we have, that we might run this race with patient endurance. In Jesus' name, amen. This past May marked the 50th anniversary of the Vancouver Marathon. This world-renowned course stretches over 42 kilometers of Vancouver streets, attracting runners from all over the world. Now, as a church, we've been privileged to serve our community by manning a water station at the marathon for the past number of years. It's uniquely positioned at the last one-third of the course. And this water station comes actually at a very crucial time for these runners. They are often exhausted, they're thirsty, they're low on energy. And at the point when they reach our water station, they are not quite sure that they will make it to the end. And yet when they meet our very enthusiastic team of volunteers from Christ City Kitsilano, they, who not only serve them water and gel packs, but call them by name, and cheer them, on, cheer them on in their run, they are often re-energized to press on. Our team reminds them of the goal of crossing that finish line. In fact, our team has won the Vancouver Marathon Society Community Award several years in a row now. This award recognizes the team that creates the most enthusiastic, memorable, and fun experience for the runners. And I can't help but think that this is a somewhat fitting picture to what we will be talking about from Hebrews today. In Hebrews 12, 1-2, the author exhorts the readers, the New Testament church, to run another race, the Christian race, to run it with endurance, fixing their eyes on Jesus. And in short, that is my aim for you today, church. My aim today is to exhort you to run the Christian race with endurance, with patient endurance, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That is the perspective that we need always as we go through the trials of life. Now, I'm under no illusions that this is easy. 
Just like runners at the Vancouver Marathon are thirsty, they are exhausted, they're often discouraged. We too suffer discouragement, right? As Christians, our sin, both personal and corporate, they they weigh us down. They wear on our endurance. And yet I think as we examine what the author of Hebrews writes, we will be refreshed by the living, thirst-quenching water that Jesus gives. We will realize that our endurance comes not from our own human efforts, but through the spirit-filled faith response to what Jesus has already authored, what Jesus has already marked out, what he's perfected for us. We're going to examine uh, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 through three perspectives this morning, three perspectives. I'm sorry I didn't make the deadline for the slides, so if you're taking notes, I'll try to repeat this a little bit. Number one, the enduring, an enduring responsibility, an enduring responsibility. We're going to ask the question, why, why do we need to run at all? Why do we need to run and endure at all? Second, we'll look at an enduring problem. An enduring problem. Why is running with endurance so difficult? And third, we'll look at an enduring Savior. An enduring Savior. Why the Christian race is never perfected by ourselves. It is through Jesus, through faith in Jesus. And so, with that, let's look at an enduring responsibility. And we'll look at, actually, chapter 11, verse 40, through to 12, 1. This might seem like a trivial question to ask. Why do we need to run and endure? Well, the text reveals a surprising answer. We, we are to run first because it is set before us. <laughs> Jesus marked the course for us to run. And as his followers, we ought to obey. That is kind of the plain and simple answer. But more surprisingly is the second reason. We are to run because we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Verse 1a, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run. Why is this significant? Well, it speaks to our enduring and eschatological responsibility. Those are big words, but they're it speaks to our everlasting responsibility that God calls us to. You see, today's passage comes on the heels of Hebrews 11. And if you know Hebrews 11, it's this passage we'll charmingly called the Great Hall of Faith. In chapter 11, the author lists many of the Old Testament patriarchs, these sort of heroes of the faith. And he cleverly introduces them one by one, making the point in each that it was by faith that they entered into this great race. And by the end of the chapter, he just sort of piles them on. He just one after the other, by faith, until he reaches this climatic point. And it's not what you think. His climatic point is this. He says, even though there were great patriarchs of faith, they did not attain what they were hoping for. They did not receive what was promised. They could merely see and greet them from afar, as it says in chapter 11, verse 13. For God provided something better for us. Us. 
That something better, of course, is the Messiah. It's Jesus. Jesus actually coming to earth to redeem his church, us. So that, end of verse 40, apart from us, the church, they, meaning the cloud of witnesses, should not be made perfect. Now, putting together the author's logic here, he's telling us that we ought to run the race because, in some sense, this cloud of witnesses, they're counting on us, in a manner of speaking. God's plan will not be complete until we, the church, we run the race. And like them, we too must run. It's our rightful response to run. It's our responsibility to run the race, having now attained something better. Allow me to explain. God in his sovereign plan has purpose to redeem a people for himself, rescuing them out of darkness and into the light. And he would do this throughout all ages. And he would do this through Jesus, the Messiah. The saints of old, they looked forward to Jesus, anticipating him, anticipating the Messiah. And they believed that Jesus would accomplish what the prophecies had said they would do. Hebrews 1 talks about that long ago. God spoke to us through the prophets. And yet in these last days, he has now spoken to us through his son. So for us, of course, we actually look back to Jesus, looking at his cross, looking at the finished work that Jesus had on the cross. Knowing that, believing that, we are saved by accepting in faith that we are justified not by our own works, but by his grace. But there is an additional aspect that we seldom think about. You see, we are not just saved as individuals for our own good graces, so to speak, but we're saved as part of this grand, enduring plan. We're we're saved as part of God's enduring plan. And in this sense, we together, past, present, future, we are looking for, just as the cloud of witnesses were, to an end, to one day when, one day when, when God will redeem all his people, past, present, and future, and move them toward perfection. We seldom consider it from this perspective. You see, the temptation is to read it as kind of an individual pep talk, chapter 12, and as an individual pep talk for the single Christian running the race. We often preach these sermons, you know, of how to fulfill one's own destiny in Jesus. And we forget that we are actually Jesus' people, that we are a, a people of destiny. Of course, this text has implications for the individual Christian. In fact, he gets into that later on if you were to read on. But the author reminds us this, against the backdrop of both the church and so great a cloud of witnesses. Earlier, I talked about this uh, illustration of a mar uh, the marathon, this metaphor of the marathon. And for many of us, that's very helpful to think about. But there's this one element that doesn't quite fit. You see, the Christian race, when viewed from the perspective of God's grand enduring plan, 
Unlike a marathon, it's not a competition. It's not a competition. And so perhaps a more fitting metaphor is that of an Olympic torch race. You know, back in, uh, in 2010, I had the opportunity to watch a leg of the Olympic torch being passed from run, one runner to another. And as you know, in the Olympic tradition, a flame would be lit. The flame would be lit in Olympia, Greece by a parabolic mirror before the games. And then runners would take this torch all around the world until it reaches the host country and until it reaches the host city. And the only race in this torch relay is that well, it must be timed correctly <laughs> so that by the opening ceremonies, by the time that the opening ceremonies happen in the host city, the last runner is able to run to the cauldron and light it. And you can almost imagine, okay, that all of the previous runners in this relay race or in that stadium, and they're watching in great anticipation as the last runner runs into the stadium and lights that torch. And you can see them cheering him on. And I think in some sense, that is the picture that Hebrews, the author of Hebrews wants us to see as we imagine these witnesses. Now this picture is encouraging for two reasons. I think first it reminds us that when we are tempted to forget to lag behind when we're feeling super tired and overwhelmed. I, I've been there just last week. Uh, in some sense, there is, uh, sorry, that, that we are not to give up. That when we're lagging behind, when we're tempted to lag behind and feel overwhelmed, that we are not to, to give up. Indeed, we have this great enduring responsibility. In some sense, there is actually great danger in calling yourself a Christian <laughs> because it carries with it this responsibility that is to rightly respond to what Jesus has set up for us of, of carrying this torch so that God's people for all time might be perfected. In other words, our motivation is not just one of self-interest. Rather, it is a different motivation, one for which we have been saved for. We are motivated by an enduring responsibility. And yet, at the same time, it's also encouraging to know that we are not alone in this. This cloud of witnesses is there to encourage us, to cheer us on, to exhort us, to carry on. And certainly we can look at those um, distant patriarchs like Abraham and Noah and David in the past all those that are listed in chapter 11. But consider also those that are near. Who in your life, perhaps in your family, distant family, far family, as well as near family, are in this great cloud of witnesses cheering you on? I think of how my great-grandfather came to know Jesus and how my mom shared the gospel with me at a young age. These are part of the clouds of witnesses. Yesterday, we witnessed Elisha's wedding. And it was so beautiful to see people from uh, her distant past, as well as her recent um, circumstances, 
cheer her on as she took this next step of faith in obedience in, in, uh, through the, the covenant of marriage. Now, it's apparent that the author of Hebrews knew that along with this enduring responsibility came an enduring problem. <laughs> Hebrews tells us that not only do we have a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on and encouraging us in our responsibility, but that we are to throw off every impediment that weighs us down, every sin that so easily entangles, so that we might run this, this race. He knows that with this responsibility comes an enduring problem, the problem of suffering and sin. Verse 1b, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Weight and sin, in other words, suffering and sin, are our enduring problem that impedes us from carrying out our responsibility. Ever since the fall in Genesis 3, sin clings closely because it's part of our fallen nature. The Apostle Paul captured it so poignantly when he articulated these words in Romans 7.15. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And the author of Hebrews is telling us that we must cast it all aside. The church and its people are to be so focused on running this race that she tunes her priorities, casting aside every unnecessary weight, dealing with every entangling sin, so that she is in the best position to fulfill her responsibility. In the first century, runners would often run into the stadium for these races. Uh, they would run into the stadium virtually naked. They would, they would actually, for the opening ceremonies, they would wear these long, flowing, colorful robes before the race. And then as soon as the race began, they would discard them. And they would run almost naked so that they would be free to run as fast as they could. They would have nothing to impede them. Coming back just briefly to the Vancouver Marathon, our volunteers have, um, have seen their fair share of interesting runners <laughs> over the years. As many of you know, as you've volunteered, they've seen celebrities. They've seen professional marathon runners, which are super fast, by the way. They've seen 20-somethings with all of their useful energy. And they've seen middle-aged people wanting to reclaim their 20-somethings. But uh, most importantly... They've seen the bizarre and weighted down. One year, a man ran with a full, uh, a full bunny suit. <laughs> Another year, there was a man dressed in full American football gear. It was no wonder they were sweating by the time they got to our water station. Uh, now, <laughs> to be fair, these rather bizarre marathoners were likely dressed to make some sort of statement, although what exactly, I don't really know. Um, but one thing was certain, their priority was certainly not endurance, nor winning, nor to be the perfect marathoner. And, and what a picture that plagues us as we try to run the Christian race. You see, we all enter into the Christian race with, with baggage. <laughs> we have sin. We've got 
suffering. We've got misplaced priorities. And folks, this is a this is an enduring problem. And so let me just ask you plainly this morning. What's weighing you down? What is weighing you down? You know, for some it's suffering. Perhaps it's trauma of some past hurt. Or maybe it's a dysfunctional family. Or maybe it's that diagnosis. Or that injury that happened so long ago. Or maybe it's a recent injury. For others, it's sin. Hebrews goes on to talk about jealousy and envy and anger and bitterness. Things I know nothing about. No, just kidding. (laughs) Things I think all of us deal with on a day-to-day basis. But these themselves are not the only weight. You see, the ways in which we deal with these sufferings and these sins they too in themselves weigh us down. Maybe this morning you're the type of person who's so used to carrying around your baggage, the sin and the suffering, that you don't even know that you're carrying it. It's just kind of in the backpack. You know, have you ever met a person who just kind of carries like their entire life in their backpack? And when you like ask them to move, they're like, oh, just a minute. I'm going to put this in, put that in. And, and, and they, they take their possessions everywhere just in case. And yet they don't realize that it's actually impeding their progress. They never seem to go anywhere quickly, right? Or maybe you're the type of person who's just plagued by distractions and misplaced priorities. You prioritize entertainment or financial success or living vicariously through your kids or whatever it might be, all the while carrying away around the weight of jealousy and anger around thinking that you're getting ahead, um, but not realizing that this too is an impediment to your progress in the real race. Or maybe you're the type who wears suffering and sin like a, a, a badge, like a, a trophy, Indeed, to make a statement as if personal suffering and sin is the twisted reward for having endured the school of hard knocks. You know, these are the type of people that in conversation, I kind of go, oh, you think you've got it bad. Let me tell you my story. You know, and they go on and list like the badges that they've got of sin and suffering. Or maybe you're like the one who knows about the weight. You're well aware of it. It's heavy. But you can think of no other way of dealing with your weight than just to keep carrying it on. And you know what you do? (laughs) You add more weight. You know, you go and purchase the best padding to make it comfortable. A little extra suspension. Extra gimmicks. Belts coping instruments that just balance the weight a bit better. And in all these cases, our run slows to a crawl. But the implications from these, from the text is clear. 
the baggage and the sin, the weight, it must be rejected if we are to run the race effectively. And in light of our enduring responsibility, effectiveness is not optional. Effectiveness is not optional. We must help each other lay aside our weight, the weight that we, as the Church of Jesus Christ, we have. We must help each other lay aside this weight so that we, Church, can complete our mission. So how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we reject our baggage and our sin if it clings so closely? Well, our culture and our world would have us believe that we must simply work harder to keep the weight off. We must work harder to untangle ourselves from our sin. And in reality, let me just kind of tease this out a little bit. What it, what it looks like is this. There, you know, there's a whole therapeutic industry out there centered around people unloading their weight. But that weight never really goes away, does it? <laughs> because secular therapies have no better solution than to ask you to look within for the solution. And then there's other ways of unloading on somebody, as in like anger and sin. None of us have done that, right? <laughs> what happens? They pick up what you discard in anger and they throw it right back at you. Plus, you have to deal with the added weight of guilt now after you have unloaded on them. See, if it were just as easy as work harder, the author of Hebrews would not have used the word entangles or clings, right? Instead, the author offers us something way better. He offers us Jesus, an enduring Savior. We can cast off our weight and our sin by putting it on Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 Come to me, all who are labored and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hebrews tells us similarly. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Quick side note. This phrase, looking to Jesus, really struck me this week. I was reading Psalm 27, and the psalmist in the psalm talks about gazing at the beauty of the Lord, looking at, at, at the face of God. And you realize in the Old Testament, you couldn't do that. God is holy, and we are not. And yet God, in his love and his mercy, he came down to us as a human being so that we could see him face to face. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Have you ever thought about how privileged we are to be able to see Jesus by faith 
through the words that he has written, as he's told us. Anyway, this text is glorious, verse 2, and it gives us several reasons why Jesus is able to take on our burdens, our weight, and our sin, our suffering. Look at me, look with me again at verse uh, 2. First, the text reminds us that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Commentators point out that he's both the source of faith and our model of faith. Jesus is the source of faith in that by his death and his resurrection, he's become the source of eternal salvation, Hebrews 5.9. Likewise, he's the model of faith in that he trusted God fully. He had total obedience to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross, as Philippians 2.8 reminds us. Second, the text reminds us that Jesus endured the cross. He casts aside every weight, every last earthly possession. Jesus himself cast off every weight to endure the cross. He was stripped naked. Lots were cast for his clothes. He bled on the cross, pouring himself out for the sake of mankind. He cast off every weight in order that the weight of our sin might be placed upon him. Oh, the depth of how he he loves us. He cast off every weight that the weight of our sin might be placed upon him. Third, the text reminds us that Jesus despised the shame. Though he was a son of God, he was treated like a common criminal. He was mocked. He was paraded through the streets. And though he was a citizen of heaven, he was crucified on an execution device that was not even fit for a Roman citizen. Even more, he took on all of the shame that our sin entailed. Though he was sinless and without need for shame, he took on our shame. Fourth, the text reminds us that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This signifies several things. That Jesus now at the right hand of the throne means that he's no longer on the cross. (laughs) Praise God. Though he was pierced for our transgressions and though every sin was laid upon him, his blood also atoned for the sin of every believer past, present, and future, justifying us, purchasing victory for his people. From his position at the right hand of the Father, he is interceding for us. He's pleading our case before the Father. He perpetually applies his salvation to our sin. He is the enduring Savior. But perhaps most astounding is the manner in which Jesus did all of this. He trusted and obeyed, knowing that he would go to the cross, fixing his eyes 
on the suffering that he wouldn't uh, that would entail. Sorry, fixing his eyes not on the suffering that that going to the cross would entail, but rather on the joy that the cross would accomplish. He trusted and obeyed, knowing that he would go to the cross, fixing his eyes not on the suffering of the cross, but on the joy that that cross would accomplish. And so this tells us about the manner in which we ought to look at Jesus. We too can lay aside every weight and sin, looking to Jesus with joy, knowing that what he set out for us to do will bring about our ultimate joy, the joy of having endured the race to the end, to perfection. Jesus, having gone before us, certainly provides an example for us to follow. He did, after all, say in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26, says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? So, having charted a course out of this world and having marked the race for us, he bids us to follow him, looking to him who has done it. But I think the author of Hebrews intended more than just viewing Jesus Christ as an example. And he clues us into the means by which we can attain this patient endurance. Jesus himself. We can endure because of Jesus himself. The image here is of running the race with patient endurance. Keeping to the course that is set out. Looking to, that is, fixing our eyes upon this Jesus casting off every weight and impediment and sin that so easily entangles and placing it on him. It is of the people of God fulfilling their responsibility by believing and trusting Jesus, this one and only one who is able to actually take on and cast away our sin and our shame. Do you see, brothers and sisters, we have in Jesus not only one who has paved the way, He is the author and founder of our faith. And not only one who has run the race before us, he is our ultimate example, who has obeyed the Father perfectly and set about to do his Father's uh, Father's will and only his Father's will. And not only one who will see us to the end, he is the perfecter of our faith, but he is the one who, because of what he has already accomplished, And because of his current position, enables us to run the race. And so how do we lay aside the weight of sin and suffering, my friends? We turn to Jesus, 
who knows our suffering, who takes it on and comforts us. How do we lay aside sin which clings so closely? We turn to Jesus in repentance who atoned for our sin, allowing it to be forgiven, granting us the power to keep it from entangling. Jesus is the only way that we can cast off the weight of sin and suffering. And in this way, Jesus really is the enduring Savior because he is our perpetual help. He is the one who is able to deal with our enduring problems so that we can carry on our enduring responsibility of running the eternal race. One step of faith at a time. Now, since we are preaching this one-off sermon on Hebrews in the middle of a series on Psalms, it is appropriate to illustrate how what we just all talked about and how the Psalms can relate. You see, just as I said last time, many of the Psalms are an expression of the human experience as the psalmists wrestled in their walk with God. The beauty in the Psalms is that they do not just talk in great generalities, but they expose this race in vivid detail. One of my favorite authors and late biblical counselor, David Powlison, once wrote this, and I quote, Ministry needs to know the big picture, but it really gets involved in the rush hour traffic. Change takes place in the watershed moments and decisive incidents of everyday life. And so let's look at Psalm 73. Would you turn with me there? In Psalm 73, the psalmist writes of a watershed moment when he was weighed down by feelings of intense jealousy and envy. Have you ever felt that way? I have. <laughs> and it can lead us to despair because if you're like me, it is both something that we see, that we hate, and that we seemingly are unable to rid ourselves of. It clings. It's wearisome. And it impedes our endurance. And so I'm just going to read the psalm and highlight a few things. Truly, God is good to Israel, it says in verse 1, to those who are pure in heart. Notice how the psalmist here recognizes his enduring responsibility, that he is part of Israel. Verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So he talks about the problem. Why? Verse 3 explains why. For I was envious of the arrogant. I was jealous, envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever been in a situation like that where you're seeing somebody else and you're like, come on. <laughs> How is it? How is it that they get to be so fat? <laughs> the psalmist recognizes this unbearable weight in his heart that he is 
envious of the arrogant. He goes on to describe it in verses 4 through to 12. For they have no pangs until death. Their, ba- their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff. They speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them, find no fault in them, and they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So he expands on what it means to be envious. And then the psalmist then describes how this sin dynamic has been and the futility of his own efforts at getting rid of it. These verses are so key. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You ever been in this situation where you're just weighed down and it's so weary? But notice the turn in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. By the way, Christians, our sanctuary is Jesus, right? We are the body of Christ. We could go on and on with this. But until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And so likewise, we can turn to Jesus. We can look upon him who not only helps us discern the end. He is the end. Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You notice how now the responsibility of dealing with the arrogant is on the Lord. That's one part of the piece. The other part is the psalmist confesses his bitter heart and his ultimate attitude toward God in the next few verses. And we can do the same. When we are faced with sin, we too can confess this. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you, he says. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire 
beside you. Notice how the psalmist has now cast off the weight and he has been reminded that God is his strength. Sorry, that's coming up as well. <laughs> um, verse 26, he says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You see how the psalm just comes alive? Do you relate? Brothers and sisters, we too can run the race with endurance. Here's how we can do it. Step one, recognize our enduring responsibility, putting our present circumstances in right perspective. Second step, examine the conclusions that you've come to. Do you take into account the enduring problem? And if not, take them into account. Third step, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Remember the provisions that he offers. Gain perspective on the circumstances by viewing life from the perspective of eternity and this enduring reality. And finally, repent and believe, knowing that God is the one who gives you strength to endure, to carry out our eternal responsibility by taking on our enduring problem. We can take another sip of the living water. I really do need water. <laughs> we can put one foot in front of the other. We can take the next step of faith. And therefore, let every weight and every sin which clings so closely be thrown off. And let us run with endurance, brothers and sisters, looking to Jesus who, for the joy that was set before him, ran this race. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we come with grateful and joyful hearts because you are so good. You not only set the race before us, you give us the means to endure it. So, Father, I pray for myself and for my friends here this morning that we would patiently endure, that we would look to you, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, that we might be salt and light to this community as we run this race, that people on the outside would see that our burden indeed is light, that we actually have a solution for sin and suffering. And that is you, Jesus. Thank you for that. We worship you this morning. We glorify and magnify your name because of what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.